You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Tom Best today, and it's a great pleasure to touch base with Tom. Tom's very well known in primary care sports medicine, and he has one of those terrific uh, backgrounds where he combined a doctorate in biomedical engineering with his medical background and specialising in sports medicine. So that is fantastic and has helped him to look at some basic science issues in muscle and soft tissue injuries. He's been a very active clinician working with many teams and currently working with hockey among them. And then he's been a champion of sports medicine through ACSM where he was the president in 2010-2011. So Tom, welcome to BJSM Podcast. Karen, thanks for having me. We love to get straight in for our listeners' benefit while they're driving on highways all around the world. So we're, we're interested in hamstring injuries, as you know. And you've had a big interest in this yourself. So we're going to try and get you know, key facts from you about managing hamstring injury. So we'll start off with a typical clinical scenario where someone comes in with an acute hamstring injury, pain in, in the region. And how do you approach that? So, you know, as always, it goes back to starting with the, uh, you know, with the history and the physical exam. And I think the history is a really uh, important area when you start talking about hamstring injuries. As you know, um, we haven't made a lot of... Uh, headway in this area in terms of uh, trying to prevent these injuries. There's been some recent data by Jan Ekstrand and others showing that, uh, at least in uh, European football or soccer, uh, the incidence of this problem uh, is, isn't going down. So that tells me that uh, you know we've got a lot of work to do. But I, so I, I always go back to the history, um, in particular questions, you know, obvious questions like what is the uh, what is the sport involved. Um, you know, for a long time, we used to think that most, if not all, of these injuries occurred during high-velocity, you know, kicking, uh, running types of activities. But Carl Askling from uh, Sweden and others have showed us that there's another kind of hamstring injury involving particularly the semimembranosis, and um, that occurs at a more, particularly in dancers, with a slower, sort of longer stretch, if you will. So, so I think it's always important to go back to the sport they're involved with. Uh, if at all possible, what's the mechanism of injury, although that's, as, as we all know, really, really challenging to figure out what's going on there. Uh, have they had a previous injury is really particularly important because uh, John Orchard has uh, taught us that that's probably the major risk factor for recurrent injury is that first injury. And then I spend some time uh, talking with folks about um, getting back to kind of basic uh, musculoskeletal principles. You know, we were all taught to, uh, if it's a knee problem, talk about the hip and the foot, for example. So, and, and this may be an area where we've kind of, you know, missed the boat for some time with hamstring injuries. So I ask about problems they've ever had with the hip, with the pelvis, and, and with the lumbar spine. So again, back to the real basics. What's the, you know, the history uh, and, and some of those important points. Give us some examples where you recall the hip playing a role and, say, the foot playing a role. So, uh, and, and I don't have uh, any sort of high-level science for this yet, if, you, if you're going to ask me for that. But I would say, for example, uh, and again, John Orchard showed this years ago, particularly in folks uh, age 50 and over, uh, you know, over half of them had some uh, lumbar uh, spine uh, disc uh, degenerative changes, for example. Now, cause or, or, or effect, we don't know or is any kind of correlation there. But the point is, you know, the lumbar spine, because, you know, you, you go back to anatomy 101, the, the hamstring comes off the, uh, off the pelvis. So why would we not be asking questions about any previous injuries with the pelvis or with the hip? 
in our lifetime, as you know, we never thought about problems in the hip such as labral pathology, but my guess is that we're going to see more of that where there's a, there's a coexistence of some of these problems. So um, that would be one area. In terms of the foot, you know, I don't, I don't see as many problems there necessarily. Uh, that seems to be more tied to, I think, to the knee than it does to, uh, to the hamstring or to the pelvis. Now, let's talk about when things aren't going so well. Tom, tell us how long you guide patients when they say, when will I be back at sport doc after an initial straightforward hamstring tear, presumably? You know, it reminds me of uh, what I was taught about ankle sprains, that there's no such a thing as a simple ankle sprain. And I think if there's one thing we've learned over the years with these hamstring injuries is, is, is just that, that there's no such thing as a, you know, quote-unquote simple, uncomplicated uh, hamstring injury. And, of course, the reason I say that is because, as you know, these are they continue to be uh, very challenging for us. Uh, the risk for uh, second injury, as you know, is quite high. Um, and again, pointing back to the recent data from Young Ekstrand and others showing that uh, that the risk or that the incidence hasn't you know hasn't gone down over the years, that we continue to see the same uh, incidence and prevalence of the of the hamstring problems. You know that being said, um, that may be the toughest question yet for us to answer: is when is you know when is that athlete ready to go? And uh, like you, every time I see an athlete, the uh, first thing I think about or first thing they think about is, Doc, can I play today? And typically, as you know, with these injuries, that's not the case. They really can't play today or probably even tomorrow. Um, you know, then I start thinking about when can they play this season, for example, particularly if it's a more significant injury. And then finally, you know, what's the long-term risk to their uh, to their career? Uh, but if you take your typical uh, uh, sprinter, whether it's a high school athlete or a college athlete, and, and he, or she, he or she uh, sustains a hamstring strain or what's felt to be a hamstring strain, in other words, a sudden pop in that posterior thigh, sometimes proximal, more likely distal, as we know, particularly involving the biceps femoris, and they'll often come into clinic uh, 24 to 48 hours uh, after the injury. Sometimes they're on crutches, um, and sometimes they're not, of course. Uh, we tend to think, of course, that gait is a good way to assess uh, how severe the injury is. And I, and I think that's probably true. In other words, the more severe injuries, these people have a lot more problems with gait. I saw a gentleman in the office here uh, who uh, sustained a, an injury 24 hours uh, or 48 hours before I saw him. He came in. He had a lot of uh, bruising and ecchymosis in his posterior thigh. And that, of course... Um, uh, raises a lot uh, more significant issues because one of the things that we're always challenged by is the so-called partial injury versus the complete injury. In other words, uh, is it a partial tear at that muscle tendon junction or is it a, is it a complete tear at the muscle tendon junction or is it a complete evulsion off of the um, off of the pelvis? And that's where I think imaging can help us a lot. Uh, Although, if you look at the literature, as you know, uh, we're, we're struggling there, too. There's been some studies that indicate we can uh, use imaging to uh, guide our prognosis and other studies that don't. Uh, in any event, um, if we get back to this case that I saw recently, a young man who was 48 hours after injury, he came in on crutches, his knee was flexed, his uh, posterior thigh had a lot of swelling and ecchymosis. So the first thing we thought about was a complete was a complete hamstring rupture. Now, he was 19 years old, so his growth plates were closed, so we're not thinking about a bony avulsion. We're actually thinking about a primary tendon avulsion. And that's an injury I think we all need to uh, to recognize. And, and, and the reason is 
that I think the literature is becoming very clear that there's a strong indication to consider surgery for these complete tendon evulsions. And that's probably something we've missed on over the years. And as a result of missing some of those injuries, you know, there's been a lot of um, secondary um, uh, problems, uh, morbidity associated with that. For example, uh, sometimes these injuries, there's a lot of bleeding, so you can get some uh, sciatic nerve irritation. Uh, the best data that are out there show us that if you have a complete uh, three-tendon evulsion, that uh, surgical repair is probably in order. So I, I like to think that imaging, uh, I don't think we have all the answers yet, particularly uh, if you look at the literature. Again, some studies are advocating for imaging, particularly MRI, uh, to, to guide your prognosis and others aren't. Uh, we're starting to develop some experience here, and I think certainly in Europe and other places are ahead of us, but looking at the use of uh, ultrasound. The reason I like ultrasound is because you can get a um, real-time assessment of, uh, of, of function, if you will. So, for example, if you have the patient uh, in the prone position and you're able to have the ultrasound in the office, sometimes what I'll have them do is actually perform a, a, a knee flexion. And if I can image that muscle tendon uh, unit, I, I can actually see, A, is it completely detached? And then, B, how far is it retracted? Because one of the things, if you if you look at the literature we talk about is, you know, if the tendon's not more than uh, two centimeters uh, retracted, that you don't necessarily have to uh, um, fix that surgically. Again, we don't have necessarily high-level evidence to guide that, but um, I think that's a good way of using uh, imaging, particularly ultrasound and the use of dynamic ultrasound. And, of course, we all recognize that that's not necessarily always available, but if you do have a musculoskeletal radiologist or have access to ultrasound, that may be one area where you, you can consider using it. Tom, when you're making that decision about final return to sports, so they've been out for a few weeks and then, you know, am I good to come back? How do you do that? Well, you know, if, if we had the answer to that, we could probably both go to Florida uh, for the next few days. Um, you know, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's one of the most challenging questions. Uh, I think for a long time, uh, many of us, including myself, have thought that uh, with these injuries, particularly these recurrent injuries, that um, these athletes, uh, when they heal, they heal with a lot of uh, scarring. Some studies, uh, particularly at the University of Wisconsin, where they've done some pretty sophisticated MR imaging, and, and it turns out there's not a lot of scar tissue there, uh, particularly in these uh, muscle tendon junction injuries. Having said that, uh, maybe it doesn't necessarily take a lot of uh, scar to, um, to, to disrupt function. At the end of the day, I think the problem we have now is how do we really evaluate clinical function? Because that's really what we're most interested in. We can talk about strength and range of motion, and certainly the studies are very good to show us that if you look, for example, at a sprinter, you know, typically these people have very good flexibility and they're very strong, and yet they, they sustain these injuries. One of the prevailing thoughts now, and again, this isn't necessarily proven out by too many studies, but one of the prevailing thoughts is that maybe after these injuries, we get an alteration in the uh, muscle firing patterns. And there was a very good paper, as you know, in the, uh, uh, in, in the BM, uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine here recently by Sol and others where they looked at, uh, this was a cross-sectional study, so this was a retrospective look, but they looked at individuals who had had hamstring injuries once they were cleared for sport, and they looked at their uh, EMG or muscle firing patterns and showed that they were still abnormal when they were cleared to go back to sport. That's something we've been thinking a lot more about, and I think others around the world have as well. The problem is, you know, you're not going to get an EMG on every one of your athletes. So the real question becomes, how do we assess their function clinically? 
One of the things that we've been doing here, and I think others are as well, is starting to, for example, if it's a sprinting athlete, is actually watching them run. And so, for example, we will sometimes put them on a treadmill. We'll do some gait analysis to see if there's any difference from side to side. And that may, we think, may be helping us in terms of actually getting them back to sport. But for the everyday person like you and I who doesn't necessarily have access to that technology, it's a very, very tough question. And I think the literature bears out, as you know, that's why the risk is so high uh, in terms of, uh, of these second injuries. I always look at this as, as a balance. Uh, it's like any other decision we make in medicine. We have to remember, for example, even, even a drug like penicillin, which, uh, as we know, is still the drug of choice for strep throat. On the other hand, penicillin causes anaphylactic reactions. So there's a risk-benefit to everything we do, and I think when we're dealing with athletes from a practical standpoint, we have to always keep that in mind, and we have to be honest with them and tell them what we really know and, and sometimes what we don't necessarily know as well. Yeah, I appreciate that's a tough one, which is why it's fun. <laughs> I danced around that one, sorry. Uh, but don't you agree that that's really, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that, that's probably our biggest decision. And we, and we just don't have good, we don't have good clinical tests, do we? You know, and, the, and these, uh, these athletes are flexible, they're strong, you know, they're, they're ready to go back. They, they've done all the rehab, and yet they go back and they re-tear their hamstring. I really think it's got something to do with these muscle firing patterns. And that paper that was in the journal whenever it was a couple months ago or whatever by Sol and others, that, that's a brilliant paper. It's retrospective, as you know, but uh, gosh, it, 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 to me, it, it, it opens the door for a lot of, you know, some, some really good research. And then, and then the problem is how to, or the challenge is going to be developing the best clinical test to, to detect that, you know, muscle, uh, altered muscle firing patterns. I can help our listeners out with that paper and uh, Gisela Sol, S-O-L-E, is originally South African and she's in New Zealand now. She's in Dunedin and that's in the February BJSM 2012 happens to be on page 118 of the print version, but you can find that easily. That's a good starting place, and there are limitations, as Tom says, but it's one of the many interesting hamstring papers in that February issue of BJSM. So, Tom, right now, though, you and the physios work together to see these athletes and make decisions for Ohio State as to whether players can go back. So you have a look. Just tell us how you... Is it, you know, that last week? Is there a bunch of steps? Do you do it in discussion? You implied that. Um, you know, you're deciding whether someone can come back and play. It's a big game... Just give our leaders, readers, listeners a couple of practical insights if they're watching you and the physio work through this and maybe the strength and conditioning people, how you make that decision. You know, I think this is a great example of where, uh, as a sports medicine team, we really function best as a team. Um, I rely very heavily on what the uh, uh, physical therapist, athletic trainers, and even strength and conditioning folks, um, colleagues of ours, will, will, will tell us about uh, when they think these athletes are, are, are ready to go. Um, I think another point, uh, another practical point is, you know, is listening to the athlete. Particularly, I, my experience has been that sprinters are probably the best people for really knowing when they're ready to go again. Um, having said that, of course, I remember Peter Bruckner years ago saying with the hamstring injuries, always uh, add a week on to what the athletes tell you, and then they're ready to go. So maybe that's a great, you know, that's a great summary point. But but I do spend some time uh, with with our athletes when they're over in, in, in physiotherapy. Again, uh, it, it's a little bit easier in sports where they are involved with um, uh, things like running and, and kicking. Uh, so we will spend a lot of time watching their mechanics. 
Um, and, and in reality, we, we, we're really probably not really focusing so much on the hamstring. Again, getting back to the concept of with the hamstring, it's, uh, it could be about the hip and the pelvis and the lower spine. So the so-called functional movement patterns are incredibly important. So if you have a sprinter who probably has cleared all of our traditional measures of strength, range of motion, let's say 10 days after an injury, actually getting that athlete uh, back onto the track or, or maybe perhaps in a more controlled environment such as a treadmill and watching uh, he or she run is incredibly important. So, for example, we'll do some videotape analysis sometimes to see because in, in real time when these athletes are moving quick, it's, it's really hard to detect side-to-side -side differences. But we'll do some videotape analysis and then even break it down uh, frame by frame, for example. We'll sit down with the athletes and, and sometimes they're very insightful too, as you know. They can actually detect the differences if they if they watch, for example, uh, uh, watch themselves run uh, from behind, if you will, and they can see the difference sometimes side to side that we may not even necessarily detect. So I've, I've done that over the years and found that very, uh, very helpful, very practical. Uh, you know, spending some time with them, as I said, watching them and then, and then replaying that uh, videotape analysis, if you will, just to get them into that functional movement pattern because it's so important, as you know, at the end of the day, sport is about functional movement patterns. So being able to replicate those movement patterns but more importantly, being able to replicate them appropriately. And in this case, of course, we do have a side-to-side -side comparison, as you know, unless, of course, they've had injuries to, to both, both sides. Thanks, Tom. So let's move on to the recurrence issue, because clearly that's um, why this is so tricky. You see a patient who's had a recurrence. How do you sort of approach that patient differently? Yeah, thanks, Karen. So that's where, again, I think it's incredibly important to go back to what else could be going on. Could it be something in the hip? Could it be in the, in the pelvis or in the lumbar spine? We have to be careful, of course, because we don't know if it's necessarily cause or effect, right? It's not like we saw the athlete before they had the injury. So these are athletes that have had, as you said, the so-called recurrent hamstring strain. And, and, and those are, I think, again, one of the, the more challenging areas. We talked earlier about uh, scar tissue. Um, I think this is an area where we, we do need to, we need a lot of work. Um, in particular, uh, there's, there's, been, uh, there's been tremendous interest in the use of, uh, of PRP, for example. Um, and uh, we actually reviewed this literature, as you know, back in uh, early, uh, about a year ago now. Uh, Bruce Hamilton and I, Bruce Hamilton from Qatar, formerly with UK Athletics, and I reviewed this, uh, this literature about a year ago. And at the time, as you know, we didn't have a lot of, again, a lot of high-level evidence. There were some, there was a, a few case reports that, that actually appeared promising. Uh, so we, we, we do start to think about the use of things, uh, agents such as PRP. Uh, the problem there is, you know, or the challenge is there's, there's many different forms of, uh, of PRP out there, many different preparations. So, you know, to, to give you a simple statement is a really, really challenging thing. Nevertheless, um, I think that's one indication, potential indication for the use of PRP. Uh, secondly, this is where I really do start to think about what is going on in terms of muscle firing patterns. And, and if you have any ability, uh, either locally or regionally, to, um, to, to have access to something like EMG or to do some gait analysis, uh, I think it can be tremendously important and insightful in terms of uh, rehabilitating these athletes and, and perhaps holding them out further. Uh, but again, we have a long ways to go, as you know. And again, I point to Jan Ekstrand's uh, recent publication, which was also part of your special issue, pointing out that, you know, in terms of looking at annual uh, risk for injury, we have not made you know, great progress in that area over the past decade. 
Thanks, Tom. And certainly you and Bruce have a nice paper in 2011 on PRP in muscle, as you say, and readers can find that at the Clinical Journal of Sport Medicine in January 2011. So a lot of work there on PRP. So that takes us into non-steroidals as well. And you've been quite prominent because your research has uh, investigated non-steroidals in sport. So why don't you summarise the clinical take-homes from your research for our clinical listeners? So I think the first thing to remember is that... um like, like anything else, there, there's never a, a simple single treatment for everything. Having said that, I think all of us uh, continue to use non-steroidals for a variety of clinical problems uh, in, in sports medicine. And certainly, uh, if, if we're not using them, our athletes uh, are, are probably using them, as you know. And I think we're, we've been able to uncover that over the last few years through some anonymous surveys and so on in, in terms of the actual uh, usage of non-steroidals and, and how high it really is. Having said that, I think uh, what's really important to remember about non-steroidals is most of the work that has been done has been done in a, in a very controlled environment in, in the laboratory, often in vitro, so looking at cells, for example. Uh, and that's a great starting point, but there's one real key point here, and that is that in some of these studies, uh, the take-home message which is appropriate has been that non-steroidals may actually interfere with muscle regeneration. What everybody needs to remember is, though, that those studies, uh, and many of them point this out, used very uh, very high, if not super physiological doses of non-steroidals, so doses that wouldn't be necessarily practical in the clinical setting. So having said that, I think what it does point to is that if you're going to use them, you need to use them with some, with some caution, meaning you have to be respectful of the half-life of the drug and, and when it should, you know, uh, uh, what the appropriate dosages are. And that's really important with athletes, as you know, because they're always looking for the edge. So if it's really uh, uh, naperson, which is to be taken twice a day, I think you really want to spend some time, sit down, look them face to face and say, look, this is really important that you only take this, you know, twice today. The other key point is the time. When do you actually use these agents? And, and this, I think, applies to an ankle sprain as well as to a muscle injury. If you If you accept some of the work that uh, our laboratory has done as well as others. The key point for intervention in, in most of these injuries is probably in the first 24 to 48 hours. So, uh, and, and what I mean by that is if you're going to use these agents, uh, a lot of the action, if you will, biologically probably occurs in the first 24 to 48 hours. So you get, for example, an acute ankle sprain or you get an acute hamstring strain. We know that there's, uh, uh, that, that injury occurs uh, uh, very early. And it may be in that first 24 hours, if you're going to intervene, that really is the golden period. In other words, don't wait three or four days because a lot of the biological events have probably already occurred. So from a practical standpoint, if you are going to use them, and, and, and I do use them, I think uh, anti-inflammatories, as we all know, they, they work. They, they help to control pain. And that may be particularly important when you're talking about some of these injuries and trying to get these athletes to move early on. So again, if you're going to use them, I would intervene early. The second point is I would respect the biology of these medications and then not go to higher than, than uh, prescribed doses because of some of that basic science data. I think if it's taught us anything, it's that. And then thirdly, like everything else, it, it's, got its, um, it's got its place in terms of how long you use it for as well. And, and I tend to use them uh, for, for very short periods of time, uh, three to five days at the most. Um, and, and usually by that point, we've achieved really what we want to do in terms of pain control, in terms of modulating the inflammation. And of course, there's other um, uh, agents as well, right? Remember that compression wraps work and there's good old ice. Ice is a very, uh, it's a very cheap medication, if you will, maybe one of the cheapest medications that we have available to us. And that's probably 
from a practical standpoint, very important is to get that ice on early, to limit that early bleeding. You don't want to get a lot of that blood into there that may be setting you up for, for some additional injury to the muscle. We have quite a few massage uh, therapist followers through BJSM. And if I remember rightly, you've done some research on that and are in the midst of doing some trials on massage, Tom. So can you give us a snapshot on the role of massage in sports medicine injuries? Sure. And then I want to return to that, if that's okay, afterwards, talking with you about something. Um, you know, the... Uh, I mentioned earlier that if you're uh, if you're going to intervene uh, with these injuries, and again, we're talking particularly about muscle injuries today, but I think uh, ankle sprains and other injuries may apply as well, it's probably very early on. Massage, as you know, is something that, again, a lot of our athletes use. Um, there's tremendous interest in that, at, at least in the United States. Uh, we've now got insurance companies, uh, most if not all insurance companies, that have uh, uh, indications for insurance coverage now for massage. Um, uh, and, and certainly uh, our, our athletes use it, as I said. I know there was a study published uh, seven years ago, uh, I believe it was in the British Journal Sports Medicine, where they looked at, it was a survey, and showed that 45% uh, of athletes had at one point in time in, within their given season had used uh, massage for a variety of reasons. So we've developed an interest here in trying to uh, answer some some basic science questions, and we're using our animal model and we've created a, a way to apply a cyclic compressive load to the muscle to try and, and mimic massage. And, and just briefly, we're very uh, excited with some of our uh, early findings. What we've been able to show is that by application of this cyclic compressive load to a muscle which has been exercised and injured, that if you can apply this load over four days for as little as 15 minutes, that you can actually get the muscle uh, muscle's functional uh, performance, if you will, uh, measuring joint torques to recover much quicker than if you had not uh, massaged the muscle. So that's something we're very excited about. The second point is getting back to um, the, the time frame in which you want to be treating these injuries. We just completed a study uh, where we compared uh, massaging the muscle immediately after the exercise and injury to a study where we delayed uh, the massage. And as we, we had hypothesized, if you intervene early within the first uh, day or so, the muscle recovers much quicker than if you wait two or three days. So again, I think we're, we're building a story here from a practical standpoint to say, um, and I don't want to say necessarily regardless of what techniques you're going to use, whether it's manual therapies, whether it's pharmacology, but it does appear that in terms of treating these injuries, that earlier is better in terms of uh, improving in, uh, recovery from these injuries. I've got this image of you massaging the rats. It's a, it's a great image of, uh, of you doing that. But we've got to move on. And I want to talk about your role in ACSM. And clearly, it was a busy year when you were president. But looking forward for the 2012 meeting in San Francisco, what have clinicians who are listening to this got to look forward to? ACSM, as you know, the American College of Sports Medicine, is an organization which uh, is now in its uh, 58th year of existence. Uh, it started out, as you know, surprisingly, I don't think many people uh, remember or recognize this, but it really started out uh, uh, largely as a, as a small group of physicians who got together. Uh, Joseph B. Wolf, who one of the uh, lectures is, is uh, named after, one of the named lectures at the annual meeting, uh, is a physician or was a physician. He was a cardiologist. 
that evolved very rapidly to involving exercise physiologists, and for a long time they were the the landmark, if you will, of the of the American College of Sports Medicine. Uh, for those who are historians, if you go back and look at uh, a lot of the classical exercise physiology literature, for example, looking at training and altering muscle fiber types, a lot of that work was first presented uh, through the American College of Sports Medicine annual meetings. But the college has rapidly evolved. Uh, it is now approximately 40,000 members. It includes really all facets of sports medicine. So, so whenever somebody asks me about should I consider coming to the annual meeting, I say absolutely, but more importantly, why? And that is because it's, it's arguably the one organization that tries to pull everybody together, whether you're an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, uh, an exercise physiologist, a biomechanist, and, and on and on and on. So, uh, having said that, it does present some challenges for us in terms of trying to uh, to actually plan that meeting. As you know, it's a four-day meeting, and it's it's quite intense. Uh, it starts at 8 in the morning, typically goes to 6 or 7 at night for, for four straight days. So it's, it's a very intensive meeting, if you will. But I also think it's a very collegial meeting. It gives you a chance to, to meet some of these people. And, and I encourage those who've never been to consider, for example, you know, where can you come to a meeting and meet somebody like Paul Thompson, one of the former presidents who's one of the leading uh, sport medicine cardiologists in the world. But at the same time, you can meet uh, Charles Tipton, who uh, is one of the pioneering uh, exercise physiologists and looking at the effects of, of immobilization on, on ligament healing. So it's probably the one meeting where you can pull all of these people together. And again, it's a very, it's a very uh, collegial meeting. I know for students it can be somewhat uh, intimidating, but uh, you know we've worked hard over the years to try to change that and to get uh, some of us older guys a little bit more uh, uh, you know, friendly, if you will, and, and out and about and, and meeting people. So. Uh, our annual meeting this year, as you know, is uh, in San Francisco, which is always a, a big draw. I know we're, uh, based on uh, abstract submissions, we're at an all-time high, and we're hoping for the same, too, in terms of uh, uh, people who actually come to the meeting. So if you've been before, hopefully you've enjoyed the meeting, uh, and we'd love to see you come back. And if you haven't been, please at least think about us. And, and the website is, is very easy to find. Uh, it's ajsm.org. Uh, the website has just undergone a major renovation and is actually something that's uh, even enjoyable now to take a look at. So, uh, you know, please consider us, uh, if it's not this year in the future, not only for uh, for coming, but also participation and submission of your, of your research and other, uh, whether it's uh, clinical research, basic science research, um, uh, colloquiums. We have a wide variety of, of, of forms in which to exchange information and, and, and develop new friendships and collaborations. Tom, just give us that website one more time. Uh, acsm.org That's great Tom, thanks so much for all that and we could clearly do this again, I really appreciate your support as a BJSM Ed Board member, you've written a tremendous book, Evidence Based Sports Medicine which has really moved the field forward you're an NIH funded researcher you provide clinical care on the sidelines and in the office so you really the epitome of a fantastic clinician scientist that's uh, very something's very difficult to do so congratulations and thanks for sharing your wisdom on hamstring injuries with BJSM listeners Karen, thanks very much. An absolute pleasure as always. I think many of you will want to follow up on some of the things that Tom has mentioned. And so on the podcast page, you'll find links to the BJSM elements. We have papers such as the one by Jan Ekstrand that Tom mentioned about MRI and, and prognosis after hamstring injuries. Kyle Askling has an itching paper about the two types of hamstring tears and the entire February issue of 2012 focuses on hamstring injuries. 
in podcast form, click on Carl Askling's podcast. And also Kim Harmon has one on ultrasound and the role of office ultrasound, which Tom touched on as well. So other links on BJSM. Things that are outside BJSM that we would have loved to have is Kyle Askling's H-Test paper. Here's a paper on the H-Test, which we'll mention in our blog, and this is another way of deciding whether someone's ready to return to sport. And it's relevant to what Tom was saying about the patients often have a perception. And the cool thing about the H-Test the hamstring test by Askling is that it really does rely on the patient's perception. So it's very different from the old days when we were looking for objective measures such as strength on the Kincom. Thanks for listening to the BJSM podcasts and feel free to send your suggestions on people you'd like us to interview on email or using Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ. Have a great day and let's keep people active and injury free. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.